This is Dollars to Donuts with Steve Portugal. Hi, and welcome to Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where we talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. I'm Steve Portugal. If you are curious about developing your team's user research superpowers, or if you want a partner in discovering and acting on new insights, get in touch at portugal.com. You can also buy my book, Interviewing Users, from Rosenfeld Media and Amazon. Nancy Frischberg is the manager of user research at Financial Engines. I've long known her as a passionate advocate for user experience, and she's worked at companies you may have heard of, like Sun Microsystems, IBM, and Apple. I also know her to be committed to helping develop the community of user experience and user research here in the Bay Area, where she's been a chair and a member of the steering committee for Bakai, the human-computer interaction meetup group. I'll always see her at any talk I go to, Bakai or others, and I'm a big fan of her live tweeting. I'm very pleased to speak with her here on Dollars to Donuts. Well, thanks, Nancy, for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I'm delighted to be with you, Steve. It's always good to have a conversation with you. Oh, thanks. You too. So let's just start with uh, kind of introductions. Um, you know, tell me about uh, your organization and uh, and your role there. Right. I am working currently at a company called Financial Engines. And Financial Engines is, we have to be the largest something, right? We are the largest registered investment advisor in the United States. And that means that we work with organizations that you're probably familiar with, like um, Fidelity, Vanguard, and others in that same category, who we call providers, and I think they call them that too. And also with the employers, very big employers, a bunch of the Fortune 500 and 1000 group, uh, to hold and to manage the investment funds that ordinary employees are putting away in their 401ks. So we manage 401ks for people. My role here is a manager of user research, and I'm the first such manager that they have had, or even full-time user researcher that they've had. Um, we uh, About two years ago, the company uh, looked around and said, you know, we've been spending a lot of time talking to the employers and making sure that they're happy and they understand that we are, you know, sharing the responsibility with them of keeping people's 401ks safe and well invested. And what we want to do is make a better customer experience for the end user, for the employees. And so there's been a big push on. We've grown from one person to about 15 in the user experience group. And I'm part of that big uh, um, growth spurt. So you're the first person that's uh, dedicated to research. Have there been others as part of that growth spurt? Uh, I have two contractors working for me now, and depending on how the planning goes for 2015, um, I may be hiring some people also, or we may be, you know, rearranging our group. So I've got a junior user researcher working with me, and also a recruiter, full time. Ah. That sounds like a, having a full-time recruiter sounds like a luxury, but I, I don't know. Is it? Um, uh, I don't think we could do this job without it because when we want to get acquainted with our actual end users, there is a bit of a dance that we do with the employers. And so we can't just call up anybody who's in our database. We have to... 
um, make sure that the employers are on board and which which group of employers, plus we are restricted from recruiting people from specific employers while there are other kinds of communications that are taking priority, like enroll in our programs. And so bringing awareness to the programs is more important than recruiting to the user research effort, um, you know, uh, in the in the big scheme of the business, even if it means there's a pause in recruiting from certain employers for a month or so. So yeah, uh, and anyway, there are lots of reasons why it's helpful to have a full-time recruiter. I was working with somebody who was doing trying to do it part-time and do a bunch of other project management, and it was just too much for her, and we agreed having a full-time recruiter would be the right answer. How does your full-time recruiter sort of work internally to track all those different uh, <laughs> efforts that are going on elsewhere? Uh, well, um, we have a kind of coordination. We, so Financial Engines headquarters is here in Sunnyvale in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley. And we have two other locations. We have the Boston office, which is where all the um, employer and the provider relationships get managed out of. And we have the um, call center, which is full of people who are, you know, uh, licensed um, financial advisors, and that sits in Phoenix. So there's a lot of coordination that goes on among the three different offices, and we are in the midst of bringing Salesforce to life to help us so that if Boston says Acme is in their campaign period from now until the 15th of December, you can't talk to them. I mean, you know, we're talking now in November, so that would be like a month. And um, and you can't talk to them for user research purposes just now. Then what we hope in, in Salesforce is we'll be able to put a little tick in there and they won't even come up as uh, eligible to be invited, right? And so what we're doing is we're inviting people to the User Research Council, and then once they're invited, we know that they're in the pool of eligible people to participate in our studies, and then we try to pre-qualify. So we need people this week who are 35 to 45, or we need people who have savings in the range of 25K to 150K, or you know over 150 but less than a million dollars, or whatever it is, right? So we can do that kind of filtering with Salesforce. So far, we've been doing it in kind of haphazard ways while we've been waiting for Salesforce to get implemented. But through Salesforce, you would have all the things that are blocking you now, such as other campaigns or other factors, those are all represented in Salesforce. Those will be represented will in be. Salesforce. They're in. The, they're being implemented right now. You know, this month, a bunch of them. They ha, they have been. Some of the things that I'm not even aware of have been implemented all the way through the summer until now. But the stuff that is kind of more visible to me is getting implemented this month. I, I could see a difficult situation where you guys would really have to scramble to get the information to find out where you're allowed to play or not. But it sounds like the system that's being developed acknowledges that these different groups have to work together and that no one wants to step on anyone's toes. And you guys are included in, in the plan of how that's going to be implemented. I think that's a fair assessment. I, I should say that when I came in here as the user research manager, it was not just my director of user experience who knew what he wanted and knew what a good research program might look like. It was also the CEO. Um, 
and uh, who understood what customer experience ought to be and how we hadn't yet built out all the aspects of it that we wanted to. And so I've gotten really terrific management support for the program. And I spent a bunch of time, I think, selling into the organization initially, like about four to six months of explaining why I was putting in place various policies and how I would communicate and and getting some advice from other people about, you know, you don't want to do this, you do want to do this, stay in touch with these folks. And, you know, I've made a few missteps and they've left me out of some things. But for example, even today, somebody, uh, a, a prospective participant that we've been trying to schedule got an email from financial engines not related to the research program and sent reply and said, okay, to that email, and when shall we schedule our survey, by which she meant our session. And luckily, the three people on her account looked at each other and wrote me a note and said, is this one of yours? And I wrote them, I was happy to write back and say, thank you. Yes, she is. And here's what happened. You know, we had a scheduling problem before that email went out and I'm sure she just saw financial engines and she thought you guys were me as well. You know, it's all one big organization. So it's starting to act like that. And, and that's, that's a success where the, mm-hmm. the, they know where to, where to turn to and not just uh, act siloed. <clears throat> exactly. Yeah. And and for example, like one of the things that we've learned uh, is when we send out one of these randomly selected, you know, invitations to 5,000 or 10,000 people, you know, there's 8 million people or 9 million people who are eligible for our services. So I'm taking very small samples, if you think of it in that terms. Um, but when I send out one of those, you know, invitations to a select group, um, then I also send notification to Phoenix, to the advisor center and their managers, to the investment uh, relations person, to all the admins and all the different buildings in case somebody calls in and gets that phone number and says, now, what is this thing supposed to be? And they can each say, this is a legitimate invitation. Our user research uh, program is building you know, more people into the people who give feedback and yes, please respond if you have the time. I mean, you're describing now sort of a set of best practices for, you know, for reaching out to customers that are also going to be interacting with the brand or the product uh, through other channels. Are, are these things that you have kind of uh, invented or built yourself? Oh yeah, but I think I've been in enough different organizations so that I've asked most kind of what is the best practice. You know, I don't think I completely invented it out of whole cloth. You know, I've, I have been involved in getting feedback from people from even before there was such a term as usability, you know, so. And so you've seen organizationally what the, what the, the, um, the hiccups can be. Right, right, exactly. And I've worked in very large organizations. I mean, I, you know, where there were smoother and less smooth interactions among widely differing departments. Now, luckily, this is an organ. I mean, I feel very privileged because this is an organization that's not that big. We only have 500 employees roughly now, although we are serving 8 million people or 9 million people, right? Um, and as as more of those people become aware of our services, we're probably going to have to grow even more because, you know, people want to talk to an advisor. Um, but yes, I think that the best practices have grown out of my experiences in other other places. I just didn't sit down and spend three days, you know, in the dark and think about it. It seems like something that if it hasn't been written up and, and shared in the community that I'm not saying you should do it because I know lots of people have have 
you know, address the same kinds of things you're talking about. But it's, I think there's some great knowledge uh, that needs to be repeated and, and, and shared because this is a very common challenge. Yes, yeah. thank you. I think it is too. And I've been trying to figure out uh, both what I can say, you know, how much detail I can give around it. Um, you know, all the things we're talking about today are very general and that's fine. But I would like to, you know, develop a little more and make sure that all, I'm not um, speaking out of turn. Sure. You know, uh, we are a regulated industry. So, you know, every, every employee is uh, considered to be... Um, in the position of advisor, whether or not we actually are licensed. That is, our our audience, our uh, end user subscribers, don't know the difference between me and somebody who really is an advisor. Right. So going back, you talked about the, um, you know, just organizationally, the amount of support and enthusiasm for, you know, the, the kind of work that you're doing. Um, was that already there or is that something that you have... Have you nurtured that yourself? I sure hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I sure hope I have. Um, I think that uh, it was there in the sense that people could say the words, we need to have closer connections with our customers and we really need to collect feedback regularly. And then everybody went through agile training. So it was not just lip service, but you know, all the stuff about agile says you've got to do a demo every week or every two weeks or whatever your sprint length is. And, and you and I know demo does just mean demo. It means show something that you can get feedback about. And so, uh, that's I have I have demonstrated several ways of what kinds of feedback you can get or how you can get people to talk to you authentically and not necessarily you know in the tell you what you want to hear we want you know I always I always invite people to give us candid feedback be brutally honest it's okay now's the right time and certainly now before we release something that doesn't please you and doesn't do the work you want it to do. So that word feedback is makes me wonder about um, you know the kinds of things that you're learning and, and where they fit in the, in the development process. Are you you know there's there's kind of a continuum between generative and evaluative. Mm-hmm. What's what's the mix of of work that you're doing? Um, well, let's uh, yes. I think that we do a lot of evaluative work, but it's also um, the piece of it that's generative is, you know, we say, uh, how can we get people to engage with our site more and feel better about it, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean that they're spending a lot more time with us, but just that they know to come back that there will be something new or that that we are giving them, we are responding to the kinds of interactions that they're having with the site. What do people want to know? They want to know, will I have enough money for retirement? And how much is enough? And am I on track? And what am I going to do if the market takes a big downturn like it did in 2008? So, I mean, then there's a whole bunch of other questions that they have, but those are like the two or three big ones, right? So we say, well, here's a view on what you might want to know. And then we try to figure out how can we 
help you understand how the funds would grow under ordinary average market conditions or how would that be different under a projected poor market condition? And can we visualize it? Or can we, which of the several visualizations that we think might be meaningful actually resonates with people like ordinary humans who aren't spending all their time thinking about investments? And so that's, I think some of those are generative. Of course, we're also looking at our current products and, and how they can get improved. And then, of course, we are, as we move from that generative stuff closer to something that can get coded, and it's not just a wireframe or a nice Azure um, prototype, that, we, uh, that we're being more evaluative, I, I would guess. And so over the course of a, you know, a given quarter. Yep. I mean, I, I mean, I've, I don't even know if you if the framework of generative and evaluative is, is is fair to you, but I'm sort of. Can you characterize over over you know some period of time what the mixes of, in terms of different types of of questions you're asking or or answers questions you're trying to answer? Let me let me give an example that I can actually talk about. So. Um, if people go, well, I, and I hope this is still true at the point when the webcast gets heard um, or the podcast gets heard, the, uh, if you go to the front page of financialengines.com, we have a um, social security tool. And if you are 55 or you can pretend you know somebody who's 55 or above, because we really only have a seven-year window of prediction, and 62 is when people first become eligible for Social Security uh, benefits, um, you can plug in some numbers, your age, spouse's age, um, and if you are our customer already, then you know we know enough about you to say what your current salary is and, and a few other things like that. And you can plug in these things, and then we will say to you what your, your uh, expected benefit might be at age 62, at age 66, at age 70, or anything in between there. And then uh, if you decide that you want to share more information with us, like accounts that we aren't managing or no, we don't know about, you might have had a previous job, you might have a, rolled something over to an IRA, or you might have a pension from a previous job, that would also help us to predict your income for the coming uh, period after you stop working at your main job. And I will say about that, about that tool, we spent... The first quarter I was here playing around with two or three competing different designs, which I think was responsive to the generative question. So how should we represent the timeline? Do we need to use years or should we use your age, which is going to be more meaningful to you? Um, how can we show that the whole thing doesn't end just because the horizontal space on the screen ends? What's the right way to show that we expect you to live beyond 77 or whatever fits on that horizontal space, right? And so those were a lot of experiments we did. And some of them we did with paper prototyping. And some of them we did in uh, omnigraphal kind of PDF uh, prototypes and some we did, and you know we had sort of for, for a while OmniGraphle competing with Azure. So one was slightly more interactive, but one was slightly more developed. And, and it was it was very interesting to watch how the folks on our team, and this was mostly the design part of the team, were um, playing with each other and trying to express the same ideas in different ways. And then after a, what I call a quarter of the design sprints, and we were going along at two-week 
you know, intervals and doing testing each of those during each of those periods. Then we joined forces with a technology team with a group of uh, developers who could build out some of our ideas and who also could make new suggestions and sort of think about how the things that we had thought were going to work well already work with the existing platform that we already had going, right? So I think that may give a little color there. Yeah. And it's just, this is a sort of a product within financial engines that didn't exist that you guys were Correct. putting out. Okay. Correct. Correct. Right. And this is a free product. That is to say, we're interested in people who aren't yet our customers and we, we don't have a very robust um, retail offering at this point, but we have some. I mean, you can use, you can sign up as a retail person and get a managed account with us. That would be me. I say, that would be you, right? Somebody like you who's in business for yourself rather than somebody who works for Acme, the giant corporation. And so at, at the at the outset, you were describing how um, you know the creation of the user research role, I guess, was about talking to these end users that there was already a lot of interaction with the providers, the Acmes. Um, oh, Acmes are the sponsors. Providers are the Fidelities and the Vanguards. Oh, okay. Let's try, uh, try me again then. Okay, so okay. Uh, if I'm an employer, uh, if I'm an employee, I work at a big HMO and my HMO is a customer of financial engines, what's the label yep. for, for them? They're the sponsor. They're the sponsor, from, okay. They're the sponsor of the uh, platform that we offer. Right. right, and they might have a contract with Fidelity. Right, they will have a contract with only one, either Fidelity, Vanguard, Xerox, Mercer. There are about a dozen companies or fifteen companies in the United States that offer those services. And they are using your products to provide their services to the to the and more to the sponsor. Right. Well, and we have two different uh, configurations of how we do it, and this may be more detail than you care about, but. Um, we have what's called a provider partner relationship with some of them. And this actually is how we work with Vanguard. Um, and that means that they use our engine, the, the calculator, the algorithms, you know, the secret sauce of financial engines. They use it, but they provide their own advisor center. They don't go to our Phoenix center. They don't send the employees to the Phoenix center. On the other hand, uh, let's see, Fidelity and several of the other ones, Aon Hewitt and Mercer and Xerox, and I can't remember if there's another, um, they work directly with us. So they have, uh, they let us be the, uh, or, you know, we have the contract to be the advisor center as well as to provide the online advice product, which is the do-it-yourself product, as well as uh, what's called professional management where we do it for you. I'm gonna say that's not too much detail. These are, we're 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 talking research. Uh, it's researchers talking, so we like detail, right? Um, okay. And that, I guess that leads to my my question, which is, um, you know, you were you were brought in because of an identified need to focus on the end user. That there was already um, relationships and interaction with these institutions, with the you know across these different business models for the relationships. But I'm wondering if. Um, if your work has uh, encompasses uh, interacting with those those institutions, 
I have um, had some conversations with the employers, in, uh, and I would love to have more. I'm, I'm eager to get in front of the employers because I think if they understand what the user research program is about, and as I've said to the to our internal relationship managers, the salespeople who you know, and relationship people who work with the employers, I say you know every one of these companies has a user research program about their their own customers. I can I can name people for you from several of these companies whom I've met or trained in different techniques, you know, interacted with at conferences. So if we need any support from inside the ACME, I know ACME's user research people or I'm only one step away probably. And they haven't taken me up on that too much yet. But for example, um, I, I am learning that, you know, empl- the employer, for example, is is kind of reluctant to have us send too many different kinds of email to their employees. You know, they want the employees to be doing the work that they hired them for and not to be spending all their time worrying about the various vendors who are providing benefits. And we're just one of several vendors that provides benefits, right? But of course, we're the most important one because that's where we are. <laughs> it's the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, what I learn then is Uh, the reason they want to see a copy of the letter that I like to send out to invite people to participate in our studies is they want to send it on to their IT department to say, when somebody says, what is this? Is this junk? Is this spam? Is this phishing? Then the IT leader and the HR person who's our contact can both say together in one voice, no, no, this is a real program. This is coming from financial engines. This is going to make your 401k management better. So before I was worried that they wanted to wordsmith or restrict me in some way. And as I've been talking to them, I realized, no, they're my partner. I need them to understand what I'm doing so that they can advocate for me on the inside. It's very analogous to the what you said earlier about coordinating with your own internal uh, groups so that you're presenting a consistent voice and it's clear where things are coming from. Right, right. And it's also fun because with, well, from the inside people, it's okay. I can use them in our studies, right? I can, they are all uh, professionally managed, uh, eligible to be professionally managed by financial engines. You know, so all of us have the same thing. But you know what? Our employees are no smarter about investments than the rest of the employees of other companies. Mm. There are Some are very savvy, and some say, do it for me. I don't understand it. I have other things that I like to spend time on, so just go ahead and do it for me. So we've got the whole range of people who work here. Not everybody's a savvy investor here. So it sounds like you're really kind of on the on the really heavily focused on the end user in terms of where you're getting learning from that's going to inform design and and sort of the business to business the relationships that financial engines uh, have with these different kinds of organizations. That's not that's not what user research is, is supporting. Correct. We I have offered to them. I mean. <clears throat> the business-to-business stuff sometimes needs surveys done or they, you know, the relationship managers make a, make a bunch of phone calls uh, to the six or ten people that they, you know, uh, coordinate with and bring back that feedback. But I haven't been involved in a lot of that feedback with the institutions, correct? Okay. Uh, I want to talk a little about your team. We, we we started by talking about the person who's focused on recruiting, mm-hmm. um, and, and you said you know that you know fingers crossed there's a, a possibility to to grow your team. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So just in general, I mean, I don't mean for the for that specific hire, but in general, um, you know, imagine yourself talking to candidates. I'm wondering what kind of things you look for that say this person's mm. a good researcher or someone that I want to have on my team. Well, I had an open rec for a little while uh, this past fall, and then we had a reorg, and I lost my rec, of course. Right? This is this is the story of corporate America. Um, but I had a great time talking to six or eight people who were, uh, you know, interested in the role. And I will say some of the attractive things that I found among the those those people that I was talking to are. People who have special, you know, what I was looking for was somebody who at baseline understands qualitative research and has some experience with it. And I didn't want to have to explain what that meant. So luckily these days, there's actually undergraduate programs and graduate programs, you know, unlike when I was a kid, um, where people get this in it. They don't have to learn it on the street like I did, right? The other things, but the thing that I was really looking for was people who were not like me, people whose... Uh, you know, additional specialties were in other areas so that we would have more techniques that we felt confident in and that we had more perspectives and so on. So I found a couple of people, for example, who sounded like they were great storytellers and could make that story come alive. I found uh, one or two people who had a lot of experience with mobile, which is something I don't have enough experience with, although I'm getting better, you know. And so that's what I was looking for, the baseline and then some differentiator. That's a good way to put it. And how do you think about, um, you know, we use those words junior and senior in, when, when we're hiring. But do, you have a, do you have a vocabulary or a sense of what, what that continuum is? Junior who's, is somebody who's got the book learning and may not have had a lot of practical experience. And uh, junior probably means they also, the practical experience includes two things. It includes sort of a facility in handling the the end user interactions, right? How do you conduct a session? What's worrisome? What's not worrisome? You know, what's what's the garden variety kind of mess up that you don't have to get excited about and what's a big deal? Um, then the... The other thing about the junior is it's, and if it's somebody who comes, you know, pretty close to right out of school or a training program, whether I, I don't, I haven't had a chance to interview anybody who's come out of the general assembly program, for example. So I don't know whether I would even think of them as great or not. But the other piece is that this is somebody who may not have a lot of corporate experience and therefore, you know, like a academic and, um, and then they might not know uh, what to pay attention to and what the coded communication inside corporate America means. For example, I, I, we had a, a meeting earlier today in the company that was called, it seemed last minute. I mean, it, it showed up on my calendar uh, early this morning. And I thought, oh, okay, all hands meeting. Now I can't have my one o'clock meeting with the, the guy that I was trying to coordinate schedules with. Okay, we'll have to put that one off till tomorrow. So. 
you know, uh, what's an all hands meeting? Why would there be one today? There's one tomorrow, you know, uh, what big announcement was it? So it's somebody who's not going to be, who's going to be properly aroused. I don't mean flustered, but you know, oh, uh, this is important. If they put an all hands meeting, even for just a half hour on the schedule the same day, we ought to show up for that. Right. And somebody who knows enough to know that that's important, that helps. And that's also kind of like, how do you do business in a larger organization than just the people you can count on your hand? And this is, you know, this makes me think about, um, you know, how do you, how do you explain what you've learned in research in a way that's relevant to different kinds of stakeholders who have different concerns, different orientations, different vocabularies? Absolutely. Right. I mean, I don't even know if I have a good example for that one, but, uh, you know, I in a single day, I talked to a lot of people in product marketing, consumer product marketing. I talked to a relationship manager. I talked to the technology people. I talked to HR. I talked to the brand group. I talked, you know, I mean, I talked. I talked to the corporate communications people. Um, so. Anybody, I, I had a quick conversation with the CEO right before that all hands meeting. So I can talk to, you know, I, I can and should be able to talk to anybody and get them aroused in the proper way about our efforts. And so where you described a bunch of different functions, but where in the organization does your, does your group or your, where are well, you guys? Right. Um, user research was part of user experience until this recent reorg that I mentioned. And currently we are in the same macro organization, but we've, uh, divi- we now have marketing divided into two groups. One is the institutional and I think they call it institution and distributional services or something like that. That's the sponsors and the providers, the ACMEs and the Fidelities and Vanguards. And then the other side is called consumer and product marketing. So I'm part of that larger group, and I've now um, been uh, joined up with the consumer marketing, and we are about to fill the role of director of customer insights. And so user research, as conceived today, is going to report to customer insights. And is that, that sounds like, uh, you know, we were talking about code words in, in corporate America that's, mm-hmm. That sounds more like uh, what I what, what we might label market research versus design research. Is that right? Correct. Right. Okay. So I think I think what my group is doing is guiding. I don't want to say we're doing all the work, but we are guiding the you know user and product research, and this uh, the director is going to be guiding and perhaps conducting or hiring out for more of the market and customer research. Although customer in this case has double meaning, right? right? So where you are in the reporting structure, that that's not the same as who you collaborate with. Given your, I liked your stories before about working with designers. Is that going to continue under this as the structure? Oh yeah, evolves? no. I still sit with the designers. Just because our organizational structure is one way doesn't mean we can't have the landscape of the physical structure be a different way. So we sit among the designers. We have a very open seating area. I have to say, um, this particular assignment and the one immediately before it, which was also for another financial institution, are the first times in my career, which is long as you may know, uh, where I have not had an office, a physical office. Pretty bizarre. So what do you have? 
I have a table. I have two screens. I have a laptop. I have a headset. I have all the corporate tools. And we have a lot of conference rooms. So if I want to have a private conversation like I'm having with you now, I reserve a conference room. But, you know, otherwise I stand at my desk or I sit at my desk. We now have standing desks, which Mm. is very fun. Um, And I stand at my desk on my cushioned mat, thank goodness, so my knees don't give out, but I do like the standing part. And people come by, or I go wandering the halls and have quick conversations with a bunch of them, and we communicate via, um, you know, team track, which is our tool for tracking everything from, I need legal signature on this contract, to the lights out in the ladies' room, <laughs> you know? Mm. And is that the whole organization? That, that's, yeah. that's like that. That's that's open. Yeah. Is it called open office? I don't know what the no. terms. No, no, no. You mean the what the physical layout is? Yeah. Oh, we yeah we have an open office plan, I guess, or cubicles or whatever. I mean, I sit in a kind of round area where there's three of us on one side of the you know three of us make one part of the arc and then three people make the other part of the arc and the that's the inside of the UX bullpen and then on the outside of the arc there are people sitting also. So these kind of interlaced uh, or back-to-back arcs of three or four desks. We'll put a, a graphic of that in the show notes. No, we won't. I can, I no, can, we, I can, no, we won't. I can give you one of those. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the, for me, the jury is out on whether this is a great way to work or not. Um, you know, I'm still... the no, I haven't figured out how to um, work with the noise level as effectively as I should or could, maybe, or other people do. And I also don't keep my headphones on all the time with music going. So, I mean, so I'm sort of in between. It's interesting. We started talking about the kind of the, the relationships and collaborations across the different functions, and then we got into the, the physical layout. <laughs> but right. they seem... You know, uh, you know, acoustic. Otherwise, it seems very compatible. You're talking about moving around and talking to everyone and and integrating with different functions. One is, you know, you're you're you have one uh, kind of collaborative structure and you have one reporting structure. So it sounds mm-hmm. like that that just, I mean, openness in general is is uh, is part of how you're approaching this work. I think that's true. And also, I like to say of myself, and you may have heard me say this before, I'm a lumper, not a splitter. Right, which is an anthropological term. Right? <laughs> so uh, it talks it talks to kind of paleology, right? How people uh, think of whether it's multiple species or a single species. And I'm always lumping, so I'm happy to talk to everybody, and I don't see any barriers. Everybody in the organization should be interested in user research and care about what our users think and have have opinions based in fact and not just in their own, see their own experience as one facet of many people's experiences. It sounds like everything you do is towards supporting that. uh, That's a a cultural element, kind of a shared belief, a shared value. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and I don't think I've gotten there all the way yet. I think there's uh, plenty more to do. I don't think we are doing all we can do to report out results from different projects, for example. So there can be more shared learnings. And if you find out, you know, nobody likes the purple arrow. I made made that one up, you know. Nobody likes the purple arrow in our tests. And then you should be able to tell that to another group who've already started incorporating the purple arrow in their stuff to say, are you finding any differences? Oh, we hadn't even asked about that. We assumed it was good. And then, you, you, you know, you need for everybody to 
pay attention to those results. In an ideal world, how would you get the purple arrow information out to the rest of the org? <clears throat> well, there's there's two or three ways. One way is, uh, you know, the designers share it among themselves. And insofar as it's just a purple arrow or a layout issue or a color or a font or a, you know, order of presentation, information architecture kind of thing, that can, the designers can go a long way to making that happen. However, sometimes you need to understand what the marketing people are trying to accomplish, um, and what the meaning behind all this is, right? Why are we even incorporating a purple arrow? A purple isn't our brand color, you know? Um, but it, what you realize the purple arrow represents is this is the way that people know they're still on our site. And it's the, the thing that is, you know, somehow connected to our brand for them. Of all the vendors that my company does business with that I have access to, the gym, the healthcare organization, the retirement funds, the long-term care insurance company, whatever they all are, right? Because big companies offer a lot of different kinds of benefits. Oh, when I see the purple arrow, then I know that's the retirement one. And actually, we ha we have such a thing that we're, you know, trying to decide: can we, must we keep it? It's so familiar, and must or may we transform it? And and have a new familiar. How hard will that be to keep the brand loyalty mm -hmm. if we change that symbol that people are familiar with? So I'm sorry, you said there was a couple, and then uh, did we do we get one or do we get both of them? Uh, a couple for which? Tell me again. Oh, how do we communicate? That was one. That was one. Yes. Um, another is um, I am. You know. Now that we sort of have a, a handle on how to do recruiting and how to make studies happen on a regular pace, we, I'm, I'm working on the next phase, which is how do we share results widely and how do we share raw data widely? Because just to pick on brand again, um, there are brand relevant results in many, many of the user studies that we do, even 15 minute ones or you know half an hour conversation about something you think has nothing to do with brand. People bring up things that to me ring, brand has to hear this. And so I, um, I wanna find a mechanism where brand can, you know, I can say this one has a brand thing in it and it's about 17 minutes in and uh, you know, this recording brand ought to listen to, especially at minute 17. And so um, I have a, a tool that I am getting approved by all the powers that be, and we're going to do a trial on it pretty t soon, which will allow us to upload video, upload audio. You know, that means WebEx and go to meeting sessions as well as anything live in person that we do, plus any documents that we have, which might be design documents or white papers or external surveys that are done and other kinds of industry reports and let people and then you know organize them in the the way this tool calls it they call them channels so i could have a brand channel in there and that brand can put stuff in there but i can also point to things from other you know, project A, B, and C, and just take a clip out of project A at around minute 17, because that is relevant to brand, and put that clip in the brand channel. And then let people have a chance to, if they have a question like, 
well, what is the meaning of the purple arrow? It's not the purple arrow, but, you know, that, that kind of thing. Then they would have a whole bunch of examples where people talk about it and be able to reflect on, is this fatal? Are we stuck with the purple arrow forever? Or shall we uh, see if we can take all the meaning that's accrued there and transfer it to another symbol or phrase or whatever the right carrier for it is? But it wouldn't be me evaluating all that stuff. It would be me making all that available to other people to evaluate because I don't pretend that I understand all the business uh, you know, requirements and constraints and desires. Yeah, I think that speaks to, I mean, that, that raises an issue for me that uh, sort of conventional wisdom says uh, that you're at risk for sharing raw data because... And this is sort of the cliche, it's the us and them that researchers have, that they, Mm -hmm. who aren't us, will uh, take a single data point and make a decision about it. So one person at minute 17 talking about brand uh, is either worthless because it's rejected, because it's just what one person said, or it's uh, magnified in importance because, um, you know, it's it's a story that can be held onto and retold. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, it, I mean, it sounds like culturally you guys are coming from a different place, but I, I wonder if you have thoughts about those sort of those disaster scenarios that I'm describing. Yeah, no, I, I, I worry a little bit about that, but I also, uh, have great hopes in, uh, the wisdom of the crowd and the fact that many perspectives on, you know, I'm, uh, is this is too many cooks spoil the broth versus many hands make light work, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, the du- dueling aphorisms, mm-hmm. right? And I'm I'm going to come down on the side of many hands make light work, and I think that many perspectives on whatever the brand element is, or you know, uh, whatever the the component is, uh, is this the best way to express buy our thing now, right? And I think that that having the folks who know what the sponsors think and what they value and having the folks who are very familiar with email marketing techniques and successes and, you know, all the different aspects of how we reach people and engage people and enroll people and sustain them as they go along with their saving programs or not say, you know, they borrow against their 401k, they repay their 401k, all those different things. Um that we uh, we're going to benefit from having a lot of different eyes and voices in there. And, and, you know, if it were me, I, and I think this is because what I hear you doing anyway is is uh, fostering a conversation about how to think about users, how to think about you know real people, and that these artifacts which show certain which they distort because they're edited, but they also mm-hmm. reveal because they're edited. But mm-hmm. to, you know, maybe this is you creating just a greater literacy around uh, this very different kind of data, especially for a financial company. This must be very different kind of data. Right. I mean, you know, the the people who've been with the company for a very long time are, you know, and, the, and we have a whole other research group that's called investment research. And it's very funny when we have recruiting on our careers page, because if, I, if I'm recruiting for a researcher and uh, my colleague in investment research is recruiting for, recruiting for a researcher, really the job descriptions are so different. So I'm trying to see if I can get the, the HR department to start calling us each by slightly different names. Put a noun or an adjective ahead of that researcher. Mm. Um, 
Yes, I would I would hope that there's a lot more literacy around it. We had a little reading group for a while where the folks in uh, investment research had a lot of questions, and so I've been trying to introduce them to some of the UX literature. And, and it's so wonderful because you get to see the light bulbs go off all over again. And they ask questions about, well, why is this this way on the front page or on this on this third page of the experience? This doesn't make any sense. And then they click on something and I say, now, this is a good example of Fitt's Law. Let me explain Fitt's Law to you. <laughs> you know? Then there's all these uh, subtleties of how do you arrange things on a page that are governed by principles that these folks had never even thought about. And so they appreciate more that there's, it's not just choosing a nice color and typing the words out in the correct spelling. I also like in your story that you're blurring uh, research and design. I mean, you're talking, Mm. you're talking about things that are, that's, I mean, where something goes on a page is a, that's a design decision, not a research decision. And and I'm I'm being silly a little bit, but (laughs) you are... It, it's all part of what you're working on. Sure, because what's, I mean, the research that we're doing is listening to real, you know, we provide a context for the conversation between our company and our real consumer end users about what they want to do with their retirement funds. You know, do do you trust somebody else to manage your funds for you? Uh, do you feel capable to manage your funds for yourself? How are you making that decision? How are you and your spouse making that decision if you're married, right? And then do you have a clear sense of what your choices and your options are? And just in the Social Security tool example, if you are closing in on, you know, Social Security benefits and you go to the Social Security Administration office, if you're lucky enough to have one nearby, or you call them up, they will not give you any advice. They will tell you, they will answer your questions as thoroughly as they can, but they will not offer anything if you haven't asked about it. And so that's one of the things that we, and and some of the things that people don't think to ask about is, well, I'm saying I want to retire, I want to start taking my benefits at this age. And then what about my spouse? When should they take, when should he or she take the benefits? The Social Security Administration will not have that conversation of how to optimize that. And they won't explain to you what spousal benefits are unless you know the term and you can ask, how do my spousal benefits differ depending on what age I claim or my spouse claims? This is a complicated issue. And one of our guys from the investment side sat down and did a rough calculation and said there's there's probably at least 8,000 ways for a married couple to take Social Security benefits as a couple. And it has to do with who starts when and what. Yeah, it's just and it, and if you think of it as month by month, each you know the decision because the Social Security um, payout, the benefit payout uh, increases a little bit each month, right? Until you get to a maximum age, and so it, it's even more if you think of it as month by month. So anyway, there's a lot of choices there. Not everybody has all those choices available to them, but even just an ordinary married couple would have a whole bunch. That's the kind of thing we hope that we can do better. But, uh, you know, then Social Security will because we'll talk about a couple. But the tricky part there is, uh, you know, 
they have to trust us enough and understand what fiduciary responsibility is on our side. And I think that's something that we haven't communicated well and is not well understood also. That is, Financial Engines whole is a fiduciary. We, we are bound by law to tell you what's good for you and not what's good for us. And so we don't sell any particular product. We don't have a fund that we push on people because we don't make any money off of it. We make money off the employer buying the whole platform and a very small, you know, we call it basis points, like it's a, it's tenths and hundredths of a percent mm-hmm. of, your, um, of your value of your fund for the management of it, right? So- Which is different from getting a commission. So help me help me link it back because I think you raised this issue of trust being this important thing to to present and, and to instill. And and before we were talking about kind of internally how research and design, uh, or at least you're, you're you're talking about them kind of all together. Um, mm-hmm. So what's mm-hmm. the, what's the link between sort of the, the the process and the trying to, the kind of experience you're trying to create for people? Um, good. Yes. Thank you for bringing me back. Um, so the more I can uh, help the rest of the people who might have, who might weigh in on what the new products will be or how we will recast our existing products, uh, can help them understand what users want and what, use, what users say they want, how users behave when they get confronted with the things we offer them, and how they opt in or opt out of things, the better we can clarify what our product offerings are, both in the verbal sense and then also in the way the interactions are designed. And so um, I think that having a conversation of the whole, because I don't think the designers fully understand all the business issues involved in, you know, what we could offer people and what we can't offer people. I think having everybody involved in those discussions is going to be the best. Mm. That's great. Maybe just one last sort of larger question uh, as we look to wrap up. How come get larger than that? (laughs) My question is about you. What are the things about you that may be methodological or uh, anything in your background and the experience that you've had that that makes you great at what you do? Well, thank you. I love that. Um, Let's see. I I think. Let's see. I come out of a background. Uh, where I studied linguistics. That was my area of focus as an undergraduate and as a graduate student, and I have a PhD. So all I know, you know, is linguistics. But um, I was always interested in what we used to call applied linguistics. That is, uh, how do children learn, not necessarily the theory of language, but to take the ideas about the theory of language and see how it plays out in the real world. How do children learn language? How do we learn a second or a third language? Um, how and, and my language of specialty, as you may recall, is American Sign Language. So then that's all about deafness and disability and what's normal. And for me, deaf is very normal. I mean, there are deaf people who have other disabilities and, um, and all that, but... Uh, but for me, you know, being deaf and I, and I should think about what we want to do about this particular uh, podcast also to make it accessible for a deaf audience. Um, 
So I come from the standpoint of inclusion in that regard. You know, the my exposure to deaf folks and my experience as a sign language interpreter and a trainer and evaluator of sign language interpreters was always about inclusion and how do we make a world where everybody can be part of whatever they want to be. Um, and so I think that's the kind of set of attitudes I bring here also. That's lovely. And and there will be a transcript. Uh, so Good. people that are reading the transcript right now already know that because they're reading it. <laughs> right, right. Um, what, what didn't we talk about yet that you'd want to make sure we cover? Good question. Well, um, I think we talked in it. We talked about the User Research Council. That is my um, internal name for the panel of people who are willing to give us feedback and whom we pay a pittance for it. You know, we have a we have a small thank you gift, as do many organizations, and we are opening. Um, that panel to people who are not currently our customers and who are just interested in giving feedback and especially people who are closing in on retirement because we want to make sure we provide that great planning and transition support as people get to age, whatever the right age for you or them is, you know, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70. I mean, I had a, had a great conversation with a guy a couple months ago, uh, who was working as an associate at, at a uh, in a sales associate in a, a well-known uh, home improvement store, and he said, "I'm just doing this to have a social life, to have to get out of the house. My wife is handling all the financial planning. She's that's what her job is. It's great. I'm happy to talk to you and give you feedback on your tools, but." Um, you know, I don't need to work because I'm 75 or whatever he was. I just, I don't need to work for the money. I need to work for the the human interaction. And that was so much fun to realize that he's our customer too, right? So it's helpful to cast a wide net and get different kinds of people into your sample. Absolutely. Absolutely. We want to, we want to hear from people. And we want to be able to serve people who are in jobs like cashier and shipping clerk as well as people who are in the executive office and everywhere in between. So people listening to this or reading this transcript, um, where can they get on the panel? Yeah, on the Financial Engines homepage, we have uh, a link to contact, as many people do. And on the bottom of the list of contacts, as of this spe- as I, I'm speaking to you today, I hope that's where it is at the point when people are listening, um, is a link to the User Research Council. And so we'd be delighted to have um, any of your listeners, their parents, neighbors, relatives, and friends join up our in our panel. That's great. Nancy, do you have any questions for me? Um, I always have questions for you, Steve, but I don't think they'll fit in this space. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll take that offline then. Well, thanks. Okay. Thanks very much. It's been a really uh, enlightening and enjoyable conversation. It sounds like you're doing great stuff, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us and everybody listening. Thanks for inviting me to be part of your podcast series. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dollars to Donuts, and thank you to everyone that helped me put this together. You can get links about this episode, listen to other episodes subscribe to the podcast, and read the transcripts at portugal.com slash series slash dollars to donuts. And you can buy my book, Interviewing Users, from Amazon or from Rosenfeld Media. 
get in touch with me at portugal.com to start exploring how we can work together. 